As the opening music suggests, we are going to war in this episode of the Harrison Podcast. Private Landry, reporting for duty as your host. When we left last time, the U.S. was on the cusp of war with Great Britain and their Native American allies, with the Battle of Tippecanoe serving as a prelude to war. Just a couple of notes before we get started. First, for reference and in order to allow us to cover more narrative ground this episode by minimizing my explaining where places are geographically, I'm going to post some maps and other materials on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. Second, there is going to be a great deal about the War of 1812 that I will not cover in this episode. As our focus is squarely on Harrison, I plan to only touch on events and subjects that directly impact Harrison or on which he had an impact. For a more general study of the War of 1812, I recommend Walter Borman's 1812, The War That Forged a Nation, and John Latimer's 1812, War with America, which I used along with numerous other sources in the making of this episode. I think that about covers everything, so dear listener, strap yourself in, as it's going to be a bumpy ride. Pulling us back to the larger picture for a moment, American trading interests continued to be threatened by the continuation of war in Europe with Britain and France being the greatest offenders. Though France was guilty of attacking American ships, impounding American goods, and impressing American vessels as well, the lingering Anglophobia, as well as the greater ease of the British to falsely claim that a U.S. citizen was an escaped British sailor due to the shared language, tipped the scales more in favor of the U.S. going to war with Britain. On the high seas, another prelude to war occurred in May 1811, when the USS President attacked and defeated the HMS Little Belt in a nighttime engagement while the President was in pursuit of another British ship, the Guerriere which had absconded with an American citizen to be impressed into serving the British crown. Despite his reluctance, when threatened by the possibility of not being renominated for a second term of office, President Madison bowed to the will of the War Hawks in Congress and signed the Declaration of War with Great Britain on June 18, 1812. Despite the lingering threat of a second war with Britain pretty much since the point that the last war had ended nearly 30 years prior, the United States was in no way, shape, or form ready for war. As described by military historian John R. Elting, quote, In the matter of appointing general officers, Madison faced the difficult choice of choosing between revolutionary veterans now in their 50s and 60s or untrained, untried politicians. None of the veterans had achieved a rank higher than that of colonel, and all were thoroughly out of practice. In the end, Madison achieved a definite consistency. With the possible exception of Brigadier General William H. Harrison, all of his initial appointments were bad. This possible exception was certainly one of the few who was preparing for war, even before everyone was certain what form it would take, and even though it was not certain that he would be retained in a leadership position in whatever conflict came. Immediately after the Battle of Tippecanoe, Harrison came under criticism, fostered both out of grief from families whose loved ones had been lost in the attack, as well as opportunism by Harrison's rivals for both military and political power. In his defense, Harrison himself asserted that, quote, I believe the greatest generals had admitted that they could fight a second battle upon the same ground much better than the first. However, he could not allow himself to get too embroiled in these criticisms, as there was much to do to work towards security in the Indiana Territory. With the blessing of the Madison administration, Harrison held one final peace council at Vincennes in early March, where he found the Native American chiefs in attendance more willing to listen. 
As noted by Harrison biographer Cleves, quote, unanimous and vehement were their declarations that they would never again listen to the prophet. Despite this, as mentioned in the previous episode, attacks on white settlers increased and spread out over a larger geographic region in the Western Territories in the first half of 1812. Meanwhile, as volunteers and Kentucky militia forces trickled away, the people of Vincennes grew fearful that they were being left undefended. Even Harrison himself sent his wife and children to Cincinnati for their safety. It was around this time, soon after the declaration of war against the British, that Speaker of the House Henry Clay started mentioning to Madison the availability of Harrison for military command. As noted by Elting, quote, A veteran soldier, experienced in frontier warfare, he, Harrison, understood the problems he faced and the absolute need for careful preparation. However, he would soon find himself in opposition with other, less capable, but ambitious generals, chief among them General James Winchester. Winchester was, quote, a veteran of the Revolution who had hardly since stirred from his fireside at his magnificent stone house, Cragfont, near Bledisloe's Lick in Tennessee. Winchester was a kindly and humane personage, but his fondness for good living and his aristocratic demeanor failed to command the respect of the Western troops. In Army rankings, Winchester was a senior regular officer in the West. However, events would quickly place Harrison in the driver's seat of military operations in that theater of war. One of Harrison's fellow territorial governors, William Hull, was given the rank of brigadier general and put in charge of a force that was intended to serve as one portion of a three-pronged attack on Canada. Hull was described by Pierre Burton as follows, quote, In spite of his reputation, he is a flabby old soldier tired of war, hesitant of command, suspicious of the militia who he knows are untrained and suspects are unworthy. He has asked for 3,000 men. Washington finally allows him 2,000. He does not really want to be a general, but he is determined to save his people from the Indians. He has been governor of Michigan for seven years and now feels he knows it intimately. Every trail, every settlement, every white man, woman, and child and much of the Canadian border country. He sees himself as their protector, their father figure. There's a soft streak in Hull, no asset in a frontier campaign. Hull would lead his assembled forces north from Dayton, Ohio, to Fort Detroit in the late spring of 1812, and would, in fact, learn of the formal declaration of war en route. A chain of events would ultimately cascade to put Harrison in charge of operations in the west. First, Fort Dearborn, which was located where modern-day Chicago is on Lake Michigan, fell to an Indian force with its inhabitants being massacred and with only a handful surviving. Word of this spread like wildfire across the West, including to Fort Detroit, where Hull and his forces were readying for their invasion of Canada. Hull also learned of the surrender of Mackinac Island between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan to a combined British and Indian force. Hull launched a brief expedition across the Detroit River, but quickly recalled his forces, then received a message from the British demanding his surrender, and, astonishingly to all at the time, Hull agreed. He surrendered Fort Detroit without a single shot being fired, and thus the entire Michigan Territory fell under British control. The pressure was on now in Ohio and Indiana, and the people there had a few thoughts about what was best for their defense all of which involved a young governor, originally from Virginia. Before the Madison administration could act, 
The government of Kentucky appointed Harrison as a major general of the state militia, despite his not being a citizen of the state. Between this and strong persuasion by Representative Richard Mentor Johnson, that's right, the same Richard Mentor Johnson who would go on to be Van Buren's running mate in 1838 and 1840. Madison finally gives Harrison orders to take the necessary steps, quote, to regain the ground that has been lost by the surrender of Detroit and to prosecute with increased vigor the important objects of the campaign. Harrison now had Winchester under his command, and after taking time to organize his forces, sent Winchester and a force of 850 men to the battleground at Fallen Timbers to gather information in preparation for a greater force moving on to Detroit. However, Winchester decided that the orders of his young new whippersnapper of a commanding officer didn't go far enough, so he went further. Winchester led his forces past the Fallen Timbers battlefield on to the River Raisin in Michigan. It should be noted that his reason was partially motivated by the prospect of getting stores for his troops who, while encamped on the Maumee River, suffered from one of the primary problems of the War of 1812, the unreliability of being resupplied. This decision to advance rather than being a salvation, would prove to be a fatal one for one-third of Winchester's command, as they were attacked in late January 1813 by a more numerous force of British and Native Americans that ultimately killed a large number of the Americans despite their already being prisoners of war after Winchester surrendered. For the rest of the war, Remember the Raisin would be a popular battle cry for American forces. The River Raisin Massacre, as it came to be known, delayed Harrison's plans for retaking Detroit. In the Northwest, as there was a limited population, it was far more difficult to replace every fallen soldier than it was in other parts of the nation. In addition, Harrison was waiting for another force to move into place. Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry was hard at work bringing naval power to play on the Great Lakes. It was a rather slow process as the ships had to be built and some supplies, including armaments, had to be shipped across land from the east. We must remember that at this point in history, there is no Erie Canal. However, something came more quickly from the East that was the third factor to contribute to the delay in Harrison's progress in retaking Detroit and pushing against the British, namely, orders from Secretary of War John Armstrong. Armstrong was still new to the role, having been appointed after Secretary of War William Eustis. Eustis had resigned in disgrace after the initial military failures in the war. Armstrong also did not have a strong mandate, either from Madison, his fellow cabinet members, or Congress. This did not stop him from interjecting himself into field operations, as he did when he wrote to Harrison in March, informing him that the theater of operations in the Northwest was considered, quote, secondary, and tying Harrison's hands behind his back in terms of his, quote, authority to call out the militia, draw supplies, or engage in offensive operations. Despite his frustrations at this, Harrison decided that if he couldn't go on the offensive, then he'd work on the defensive by, insert expletive here. He poured his efforts into constructing Fort Miggs across the river from the Fallen Timbers battlefield, with the fort being described by Walter Borman as, quote, an imposing compound. Its perimeter of 12-foot-high pickets and dirt mounds was a staggering 2,500 yards in circumference. Fort Meigs quickly became the logical forward point of deposit for men and materiel and a thorn in the side of the British should they contemplate any major advance south from Detroit. It was similar in many ways to other western forts, but its unique features included the fact that it was eight acres in area, had a 15-foot high stockade, 
Six semicircular batteries along the perimeter, armed with between two and four cannon, and did not have barracks, as the forces assembled there were not anticipated to stay long before being shipped out to battle elsewhere in the theater of war. The strength of Fort Meigs would soon be put to the test, as British General Henry Proctor led a force of 900 regulars and militia up the Maumee River in order to lay siege to the fort. As the British soldiers readied their artillery, Harrison addressed his troops. Quote, Can the citizens of a free country think of submitting to an army composed of mercenary soldiers, reluctant Canadians, goaded to the field by the bayonet, and of wretched, naked savages? He then appealed to memories of the Battle of Fallen Timbers and the battlefield across the river from Fort Meigs as he continued, Quote, can the breast of an American soldier, when he cast his eyes to the opposite shore, the scene of his country's triumphs over the same foe, be influenced by any other feelings than hope of glory? One has to wonder how much comfort these words were to the soldiers trapped in the fort that spring, waiting for the British guns to start firing. Rather quickly, they would have reason to be comforted. The British guns fired, and their cannonballs, quote, landed with mere thuds. Fort Meigs was so well-constructed as to easily resist the British attack. The only problem was that the Americans had a short supply of cannonballs with which to respond. Harrison had a solution, though. Before long, the British cannonballs had been dug out of where they had landed and were back in the air, this time aimed at the British. Despite his lack of success, Proctor was bold enough to demand Harrison's surrender. Well, you can imagine what the general said to that. As his forces started drifting away and a relief force came to provide support to Harrison and his troops, Proctor called off the siege and withdrew on May 9th. Proctor and his forces again besieged Fort Meigs two months later with a larger force of regulars, militia, and Native American forces. But they made just as little progress and thus turned their attentions to nearby Fort Stevenson. This fort was much smaller compared to Meigs, only just under four acres in area by my calculations. But it did have 18-foot-high stockade logs composing its perimeter, and was noted as having, quote, an unobstructed field of fire all around. The fort's commander, Major George Krogan, determined to make a stand despite the math in terms of military strength not being in the Americans' favor. However, through subterfuge and bravado, Fort Stevenson was held. The British forces suffered heavy casualties during the attack and Proctor, despite Tecumseh's criticism of his decision, ordered his men to retreat. As the fall neared, Commodore Perry was ready. His ships faced off against the British on Lake Erie on September 10, 1813, and, as he wrote to Harrison afterwards, quote, We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Now that American forces dominated Lake Erie, it was finally time to take the battle to the British. I hope you'll join me for our next episode which I'd like to call Two Arms, eh? The Defense of Canada and the Death of Tecumseh. Harrison takes the war into British territory, and the Shawnee chief meets his ends at the hands of... Well, that's a long story. Tune in next time to hear it. In the meantime, please feel free to leave any questions or comments on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's blueberry without the e's, dot com on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, all one word, or send me an email at Harrison Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com.
If you're not listening there already, the podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher, so download some past episodes if you need to catch up while on the go. Thanks so much for listening. It is a pleasure to put out these episodes each week, and I greatly appreciate and am honored that you chose to take your time to listen, and hope to always provide something enlightening and entertaining for your listening and learning pleasure. Take care, friends. Until next time.